Hello, and welcome to Technically Speaking, a Keller Schrader podcast series. Each episode, our experts will be addressing common industry problems and how you can improve your business's performance through technology. I'm Mallory, your host, and today we have Matt Barton back in the studio as a co-host of this episode. Matt is the Vice President of Innovation at Keller Schrader, and also joining him, we have Chris Linville, a Senior Storage Engineer. Okay, Matt, let's talk about immutability. Thanks, Mallory. Chris, why don't you kick us off and explain to us what immutability is? Absolutely. Thanks, Matt. Uh, And thanks, Mallory, for having me in again. So the definition of immutable is not capable of or susceptible to change. So an immutable storage backup is one that prevents any kind of data deletion, any kind of data modification from its storage media based on your timeline. So there's some sort of a time frame involved in this. So Chris, immutability isn't necessarily a technology in and of itself. It is an implementation of some type of permanence on storage media. Right. It's a feature of other technologies. Typically, it's got a time lock based clock that is set to a certain threshold. And you can do this across multiple different technologies, multiple different softwares. It really it's a locking mechanism for storage. Really, any any storage could be immutable. But what we're really talking about here today is backup immutability specifically. Correct. Any storage platform is capable of having a lock on it. But what we're concerned is, how do I lock my backups so that internal users can't do malicious things to them, so that ransomware can't compromise them, and so that my backups are recoverable when I need them. So Matt, let's talk about some of the reasons that you would want immutable backups. I need immutable backups to protect from data corruption or compromise. I need immutable backups to protect from accidental deletion of data or accidental deletion of a backup restore points. I need immutable backups to protect against insider malicious activity. And I need immutable backups potentially for things like regulatory compliance or even legal hold requirements that mandate that I keep things for X amount of time. Something else that's interesting is with the prevalence of ransomware and how much we're seeing in the industry right now, one of the statistics that I found is that in 2021, businesses will fall victim to ransomware attacks every 11 seconds. And that's actually up from every 14 seconds in 2019, which is over 21% increase in frequency in just two years. Chris, that's terrible. So you're saying immutability is an option to help protect businesses from this threat. It is. And with immutable backups, if I were to get infected with one of these ransomware attacks, I would have the ability to reach back to my backups. I would know that they have not been modified by any of the ransomware corruption or encryption. And I can dump all the bad stuff, restore all the good stuff from my immutable backups and be back up and running much faster than if I had to actually rebuild. And I think that's an important point. One of the things that's happening with ransomware, their standard operating procedure is to seek out the backups as kind of a first step. Oh right. yeah, to we've seen it multiple times. Yep. So I, I get I get in the environment. That's first. I set off my payload. 
I compromise some sort of administrative level account, and then I look for those backups. I want to go out and delete whatever restore points you have because I want to ensure the highest chance that you're going to pay me for the decryption keys. The maximum level of disruption to your business. Absolutely. So I think you brought up another really good point, and that was backup job misconfiguration. Yeah, that's an easy one. So your backup administrator's in there making some changes to, let's say, a daily backup. Hey, I just want to change what hour this thing kicks off because I've got too many backups stacked on top of each other. I go in, I edit my backup job, and I mean to only change the time that the backup job kicks off, but maybe I accidentally change the number of restore points from 14 restore points down to five restore points by accident. And all of a sudden, the next time the job runs, I lose more than 50% of my restore points. So in that scenario, you know, it wasn't malicious. It was just an accident, but it's easy to wipe out half of your backups. Or maybe a disconnect from your backup administrators to what legal requires you to keep. Maybe you have compliance and there's just a disconnect between your teams. Right. And that would go back to, you know, communication issues or a policy not being defined clearly enough when it's handed from one department to the next. And those those things are easy to have. You know, they happen all the time. So then immutability is essentially a way that you can guarantee that your policies are enforced. Right. Because even if I do make that accidental change and now I've potentially told my backup job to not keep 50% of my backups, if they were on immutable storage with a time lock in place of, let's say, 10 days, I know that I have at least 10 days that I can still recover from those backups before they get wiped out by the misconfiguration itself. So you have a window then to reconfigure and not go out of compliance. Yes, there is a safety net there. So, Chris, now that we've talked a little bit about the reasons why a business might want to explore immutability for their backups, what are some of the options that they have? Matt, there are a lot of options. Some of the high-level things that we can talk about are tape. We can talk about object storage. We can talk about array-based locking. And we can talk about backup software. And it's really a wide gamut of options. Well, why don't we start with tapes then, since that's the first one you mentioned. Sure. So tapes have been around forever. We all know and kind of have a love-hate relationship with tapes. One of the options from tape is a worm tape. So worm is write once, read many, and these have been around for years. So if you're established with tape backups and you just want to invest in some worm tapes to put into the rotation, you've accomplished some immutability for your backups. So what are some of the benefits of worm tapes versus just traditional tape technology? Well, tapes in general tend to be the least expensive option per terabyte for backup media. They have been around for years, so everybody's familiar with them. There's a number of tape drives and backup softwares that are compatible with tape, just about all of them on the market. Again, they have that worm capability. And one of the biggest benefits is that it's fairly simple to get an offline, offsite copy of your backup just by taking the tape out of the drive and storing it in a different facility. And with Worm specifically then, when it comes to immutability, as an administrator, I don't necessarily have to worry about overwriting a restore point that might be left in my tape array. Correct. 
even if you leave this tape in there for, let's say, a week over a number of different backup cycles, you cannot overwrite these backups. So once they're written, they're written, they're not modifiable. You can't overwrite them, you can't delete them. They're on the tape for, for good. And that is tied to the tape itself. That is tied to the tape itself. That is not a software function. It's not a checkbox that you have to mark. Um, the tape itself is write once and read many. So essentially, I wouldn't necessarily have to do any configuration at all, right? I could just use worm tapes. Correct. Your same backups that you're running today on an LTO 8, you can just put a worm tape in there instead, and you have immutable tapes, immutable backups. The cons that, that apply to tape, yeah, they're so the same with worm. Everything has pros and cons. There are downfalls to tape backups. It is magnetic media, right? So I can destroy the tape physically. You know, I, I can't overwrite the backups. I can't modify the backups. But if I throw the thing in a fire, if I run it through a high-powered electromagnet, if I smash it with a hammer, I've destroyed the backup. So if you just store it wrong, you're Correct. Stuck. One of the big things about tape is that they need to be stored in a climate-controlled environment. Humidity matters. Temperature matters. So in order to get an effective shelf life out of these things, you have to incur the expense of a good storage facility, something that's got physical security, something that has enough floor space to store however many of these tapes you want for your retention. And if you don't already have a facility like that, you may have to seek out some third party that offers that service. So Chris, there's a couple of cons there that I think industries would probably have to weigh out with tape, specifically proper storage, space constraints, and then shipping to that facility, right? So that kind of segues us into object storage in the cloud, right? Which is essentially pay for whatever you need. Right. right? So why don't you talk us through some of the pros and cons? So, yep. Object storage is great to combat some of the cons with tape, like you were saying. So I don't have to worry about a courier or shipping costs. I don't have to worry about a footprint, a vault of some sort that's climate controlled to store my tapes in because the storage vendor that I've contracted with, they're responsible for the infrastructure on the back end. And all of this is going to be disk-based backups anyway. So the pros with object storage is that there's a lot of major players out there that are offering it. So I could go to Microsoft, I can go to Google, I can go to Amazon, IBM. There, there's just an endless number of players out there that offer a object-based locking capability that I can leverage just right from my environment. So if you already have a Microsoft Azure environment, adding in storage immutability for their object storage is not necessarily a difficult thing to accomplish. Right. Just go through the configuration and, and spin up the storage account. And if I don't have one of these hyperscalers, there's plenty of options out there so I can essentially just shop around for the best implementation that meets my needs. Right. Whatever's best for your business. The nice thing about these is that they do all offer some sort of a time-based retention. So like you said, if I already have something in Azure, I can just stay with Azure. If I already have something in Amazon, I can stay there. I, I don't necessarily have to look at Amazon specifically for my immutability, even though I've already got a tenant in Azure. So one of the other, other benefits there, Chris, is that object storage using the S3 protocol is agnostic, right? So I can maybe have my production infrastructure in Azure, but maybe I want my backups in AWS, right? I have that flexibility. Absolutely. So on the 
I guess the flip side of that coin that I just mentioned, even though I don't have to have a separate cloud vendor specifically for immutability, I absolutely can. So they're all using the S3 protocol or you know what they call S3 compatible. And so I can have production in Azure. I can have backups in AWS. And as long as my software is speaking S3, it's using the same communication channels to go to both vendors. We even have S3 on-prem. If we want to do some sort of a private cloud at another facility, we can even go that route. And still maintain immutability because, again, it, that's not tied to a specific technology. Correct. Chris, what are some of the cons? So, again, we have cons with anything. Um, as far as cloud goes, cons that you're going to run into are going to be uh, one of my big pet peeves is performance, right? If I'm in a disaster scenario or if I have some production workload that's just been compromised and I need to recover it, I'm always going to be able to recover from on-prem faster than I can from a cloud environment. Other things are going to be egress charges. So a lot of cold storage or archive storage that people are using for backups, you're going to have a higher egress charge there. And then whatever your software is that you're using to communicate with cloud vendors, you may have limitations with the APIs that they have implemented. So Chris, you brought up a couple of the cost implications of using object storage. I think another big one is the ease at which you can misconfigure your object storage. A lot of these vendors by default have them available to anybody, right? They're, they're internet accessible. Correct. So if you've made a mistake in your configuration, and this is with anything, but especially with an internet facing storage solution, right? If I accidentally open up my firewall to the world, then I've just invited the world into my backup solution. And it's just a matter of time before they discover that it's open. Correct. And the bad part about that is it becomes an attack vector for malicious actors. So now someone can try to compromise my credentials and then they would be able to go in and actually either completely take over that environment or start destroying that environment. Another point that I think a lot of organizations may miss is there are data durability and SLA guides for each of these hyperscalers with object storage. So for example, in Microsoft Azure, they have seven nines of availability, which means if you put enough data into their S3 storage, eventually one of those blocks, one of those chunks within that object storage is not going to be available to you. I don't know if that's a pro or con based, you know, when you're comparing to on-site tape storage, on-site array storage, because you have a similar concern, you get enough data eventually something's going to get corrupted. Right. Statistically speaking, there's there's going to be a failure at some point. At some point, right. It's just knowing what each of those cloud vendors SLA for your data is. Right. And that'll be important when you're shopping around. So that could be a reason, an, another reason, I guess, that you would look at separate vendors for separate use cases. Like we said, with production in Azure, backups at AWS or Google, that could greatly depend which one of those you choose. Yep, just based on whatever your needs are, whatever your business requirements are, shop around for it. Absolutely. Moving on from object storage, what do we have from an array perspective for immutability? There are a lot of options out there. Um, the one that we know and love here is NetApp Snaplock. 
So Snaplot Volumes is something that NetApp offers as a license that you can get for your array. And that essentially has policies around it that you can configure for making time-locked storage volumes on your NetApp. Those can be used in a number of ways. So again, those aren't just for backups, but it would be an entire volume or entire aggregate on a NetApp array that you may already have. Chris, we've talked about tape. We've talked about object storage, NetApp storage, and array-based immutability. What are the options from backup vendors? Matt, there's a lot of backup vendors out there. Commvault, NetBackup, VRanger, Symantec. Our backup vendor of choice is Veeam. With the recent release of Veeam version 11, Veeam is now offering what they call their hardened Linux repository, and that's what we're using for immutability. What exactly is the hardened Linux repo? The hardened Linux repo is a configuration on a Linux server running an XFS file system and some very specific file system flags that allow Veeam to write a backup into the repository and then flag that for immutability for whatever specified timeframe we enter. The great thing about the immutable Linux repository is that it is hardware agnostic. So there's a number of storage arrays, any kind of, we can do local storage, we can do a, a SAN array, anything that we can connect into a Linux file system, we can use that for immutable storage. And same with the Linux distribution, right? As long as it supports XFS, so we're talking Red Hat, SUSE. Yes, and Veeam does publish a list of Linux distributions that they support. It is um, Red Hat Enterprise Linux, SUSE, there's a Debian flavor and Ubuntu flavor, but they do have a list that they're maintaining of operating systems that they support out there. The big requirement, I guess, is that it does support the XFS file system. And the big benefit with XFS versus some of the other file systems that it supports Veeam's implementation of block cloning, which is a space-saving technology that they've developed. Correct. And a lot of people may be familiar with that kind of technology from a Microsoft uh, REFS system. And so on Linux, XFS is offering the same thing. It's block cloning, and basically it creates pointers to reduce the amount of physical storage on disk. So one of the other benefits with the Veeam hardened Linux repo is that you don't have hardware or vendor lock-in. I'm not tied to a specific type of storage device. I'm not tied to a specific type of software. For some reason, you stop using Veeam down the road, you will still have access to these backups on this immutable storage because you can put it on, you know, like Chris said, direct attached storage, JBOD, put it on a storage array, put it in the cloud. It doesn't necessarily matter. You're not locked in. Correct. As long as you can write that XFS file system to it, you can use that as a repository. From the Linux operating system perspective, that can be a virtual machine. That can be a physical Linux install. And we can even do that as a cloud deployment if we wanted to. So Chris, what are some of the other pros going the hardened Linux repository? So the features are included with all Veeam editions. So it doesn't really matter which license you're on. If you're concerned that you've got a standard versus an enterprise or enterprise plus, the hardened Linux repository is available across the, the spectrum of their editions. The Veeam backups stored locally, as I mentioned as a con earlier, are going to give you a faster recovery time because you can have those on-prem. And so you're, you're restoring at land speeds there. 
again, we've already touched on block cloning. That's a, a big factor when you're talking about purchasing your storage for your repository. Another nice benefit you get with Veeam is that their hardened Linux repository is compatible with their GFS backups. So if I want to make daily backups, weekly backups, monthly backups, and have those roll into each other, I can do that and still write that to immutable storage. Chris, that really highlights the flexibility that you get with Veeam, that you're not, again, locked into hardware vendor, you're not locked into a particular licensing model from another vendor. You can put this on any hardware that you want. You can configure it in any number of ways. And with that Linux configuration, you're going to have immutability. Right. It's, it's super flexible. You can customize this however your business requires and guarantee that when you need to do a restore, that immutable copy is there and is untarnished. But like most things, there's still some cons to it. There are cons. Yep. So cons for the Veeam hardened Linux repository are going to be it requires forward incremental backups. So if you're doing Veeam today and you're doing reverse incremental backups, those jobs aren't going to be a good fit. You're going to have to reconfigure some jobs. But I'd argue that is the new default with Veeam. It really is. So if you're doing reverse incremental, we should probably just help you reconfigure those anyway. <laughs> yes. Yes. The the forward incremental, that's going to be the recommendation that's coming out of the Veeam camp for best practice. One of the other things that you have to have, and again, this is this is also a Veeam best practice, is that even with your forward incrementals, you do have to enable synthetic fools or schedule an active fool somewhere in that backup chain to be compatible with the hardened Linux repository. So something else that's kind of in that same vein is going to be if you're doing backup copy jobs. Backup copy jobs have to have the GFS feature set enabled. So I can't just do a plain old copy without doing without checking that GFS box. So although those are cons, those are still listed as, you're right, the Veeam best practice configuration. Yeah, I think that's just a matter of you're looking to add immutability into your environment. There may be other architecture changes you need to make, other backup reconfigurations in order to incorporate the immutability. It's not a con, it's just something you need to design around. Right, yeah, it's a, it's a requirement. So Chris, there's some other considerations if you're thinking about doing a Linux hardened repo. Can you go over some of those? Yeah, so where you're gonna deploy this, how you're gonna deploy this, you need to think about what the other attack vectors are or what the other compromise vectors are for this repository. So if you're deploying this as a virtual machine, obviously you have other entry points. If I have access to vCenter and your VM is running there in that vCenter inventory, then I have access to do bad things to it. I can shut it off. I can delete it. I can maybe open a console to it and do something inside. At the same time, you also need to be cognizant of what storage you're using. Is that direct attached? Is that iSCSI? Do I have a network connectivity into that storage array? And then even if you are doing this as a standalone server, there are out of band entry points, right? So I'm thinking of my lights out management. So ILO, iDRAC, SIMC cards for UCS servers. All of these things need to be secured. SSH access needs to be secured. So there are other entry points into this Linux environment that even though I have immutable backup storage, I still need to secure the perimeter of the Linux server itself. Chris, I think that brings up a really good point that even though there are a lot of pros to the Veeam hardened Linux repo, 
there are still ways to misconfigure this that you're not as secure as you might think you, you are, right? And that goes back to, if I forget to secure any of my out-of-band management, maybe if I'm accessing Veeam from something other than a management VLAN, which would be you know a, a common practice. Right. If I have a direct attached storage device that maybe I leave its administrative access open. Yep, any, any of those admin credentials, you know, it's kind of second nature these days for us to join things to the domain so we can use our domain credentials for access. Absolutely would not want to do that with your Linux repository box. So there are definitely some configuration things in there that you're going to want to probably come and talk to us before you just jump into this. So Chris, we've covered a lot of ground today. Most importantly, I think what we should end with is immutability is not necessarily a technology on its own. It's an implementation and different vendors have chosen different ways to implement immutability. Right. And you're going to need to figure out which one's best for your business. And most importantly, if you have questions surrounding immutability or maybe their specific business requirements or compliance requirements, definitely reach out to your Keller Schrader account manager. Reach out to Chris directly or myself directly, and we can help you with any of your questions, help design a solution, come up with something that can better serve your business than maybe what you have today. Absolutely. We would love to help. Well, awesome. Thank you both for your time today. We appreciate you being on. Thanks, Mallory. Thank you, Mallory. And as always, don't forget, we want you to partner with us to make that positive personal impact. If you allow our team to have a quick follow-up call with you about immutability, we would like to do two things. First, we'll make a $25 donation to a United Way organization of your choice, or if you'd prefer to make a positive impact on someone you care about, We'll give you a $25 Visa gift card to treat them as you see fit. Secondly, regardless of the choice you make for the $25 I just mentioned, we'll be happy to accept your favorite organization nomination to have a chance to receive our quarterly $500 nonprofit giveaway. To help us make an impact and to have that 20-minute conversation with either Matt or Chris, visit kellerschrader.com forward slash podcast. The last thing I'll leave you with today is to remember to subscribe to Technically Speaking wherever you listen to podcasts, so you'll be the first to know whenever a new episode is released. Have a great day, and I'll see you next time.